0: Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 171. In this episode, we're talking about Job, disability, and otherness with Dr. Kirk Paxton. Dr. Kirk Patston is Director of the Center for Preaching and Pastoral Ministry at Sydney Missionary Bible College and the co-founder of Our Place Christian Communities. His doctoral thesis at the University of Sydney was entitled Job, Otherness, and Christian Theology of Disability. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Stephanie Kate Judd and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. So in this final episode in our disability and theology series. We are joined by Dr. Kirk Patston to talk about Job. And what I loved about this conversation as it relates to our series as a whole is we really pulled all of the threads of the different sections of our series together in this conversation because we circled back to biblical texts. We circled back to Job in particular, but we also talked about intellectual disabilities and even parenting children with disabilities and specifically matters of accommodation, uh, as we've been talking about most recently in our series. So I just love the way that all of those threads kind of culminated together here in this conversation, and specifically the wonderful insights that Dr. Patston pulls out of Job uh, for us as we think about disability in our contemporary setting. Steph, what were some of the takeaways that you had from our conversation with Dr. Patston?
1: Yeah, it was so good to to meet Jera, his son, just before our conversation recording began as well. Um, look, I found this such a rich conversation. I think that one of the really instructive ideas that Kirk has illuminated for me is this, the way he brought um, the work of Bacton, rather than trying to Reach a synthesis of two competing other forces, just being comfortable leaving them in a dialogue, and being comfortable with the unfinalizability of those, of those two competing forces. So that when we um, bring that to bear in our understanding of the the dialogue in Job, just being comfortable with the the other that we encounter, and and taking them on their own terms. I think that that was something that I will definitely be mulling over for a long time.
0: Yeah, I love the way that Dr. Patson uh, really draws out these notions of dialogue, as you mentioned, as well as play and wonder. And I, I just think there's such a, a richness and, and beauty to to uh, what Dr. Patson is providing for us here uh, in this conversation, which he which he draws out from uh, his study of Job so wonderfully.
1: Yeah, totally. And the way that he illuminates the, the literary function of the monster in those exchanges with with God and, and Job as kind of this coat hanger for otherness, that was something that I hadn't really thought of before. And there's so much that we can learn from those texts that can actually be very helpful for how we engage with the other that we encounter that's different to us in our everyday life.
0: If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. And with that, here's our conversation with Dr. Kirk Patson. Dr. Patson, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. So as we are wrapping up this series on disability and theology, we're really excited to talk about your work on Job and especially what you're doing with Our Place Christian Communities. Uh, Wondering, though, as we kind of begin this conversation here, if you could tell us a little bit about what got you interested in disability studies more broadly.
2: Mm -hmm. I, I feel like you can tell the story of my life almost in terms of significant interactions with people living with disability. So... Uh, My father's mother had had several strokes. And so my memories of her is that she needed help to walk and she couldn't talk. So there was this sort of silent grandmother in my life. And then she'd often be in and out of hospital and with a tube in her nose for feeding her. And that really worried me and intrigued me as a young kid. Um, I went on to study speech pathology which sort of took me into the world of people with strokes and head injuries and hearing impairment and so on, uh, which I enjoyed. Uh, I enjoyed that area to work in. Um, And often I would be thinking, as, as I came to understand the complexities of our brain and language and all the ways in which that could break down, I'd often find myself at church thinking, gosh, we've just done a very you know, a highly literate, highly verbal um, event, how would I access this if, you know, something was going on for me with a communication impairment that I was learning about in my studies? So that was just sort of a question that would often sit with me. Anyway, um, the years went by. My wife and I studied theology. We went into Presbyterian ministry in New South Wales in Australia. And then our first son was born, Jera and he wasn't quite right and in terms of development and he it was very difficult for him to sleep and he wasn't quite meeting his developmental milestones and it was interesting for me i sort of i knew bits and pieces about child development but i could i'd kept rationalizing ah oh, he's been sick or he's he's just not well today that's why he's not doing this or whatever Then at nine months, he started having strange jerking movements and it took us, it's quite a complex story, but eventually we ended up in hospital where we we can still remember a a doctor saying in the casualty room, well, at least he can still see. And we thought, oh, gosh, there's something uh, quite serious going on here. And then, then began several years of our lives of living with a young man who regressed developmentally, Um, was having uncontrolled epilepsy, um, who couldn't sit up, um, couldn't make eye contact, who would only sleep in 40-minute patches. So our life became highly chaotic and uh, difficult and uh, we realised we couldn't sustain the, the demands of parish ministry very easily with all that was going on in our lives and I had done a tiny bit of teaching at Bible College sort of prior to that, and that seemed you know, a good pathway for us to head towards. So um, then I began a, what's been about a twenty, a bit over 20 years of teaching at Sydney Missionary and Bible College. Um, as the, I did a master's degree where I looked at Isaiah and mission, working in a mission college and we were also thinking ourselves of whether cross cultural mission could be a possibility we decided in the end with jera it was too complicated for us given all the medical help that he needs needed um anyway um i, I was lecturing in wisdom literature um thinking about all this lived experience my wife lisa a deaconess worked for the church but again with um with all that's going on with Jarrah she's taken on a um, a sort of a simpler, more containable job, but she's working at the moment in education support, supporting people with learning difficulties. So for both of us, we're always aware that there are people out there in the world for whom processing language and meaning and thought is not straightforward. And um, so in, in, it was, uh, I can recall back in 2007, I went to Society of Biblical Literature meeting in San Diego, and it was my, that was the moment when, even though I'd read some books on disability theology, I actually got to sit in a room with disability theologians and heard the things that they were discussing, and had a sense, um, almost a sense of vocation, uh, just praying with the Lord after some of those sessions, thinking, well, if a speech pathologist who's the father of a young man with intellectual impairment and autism needs an area to, you know, do theology in, surely it's um, disability. And so, and I, um, a little bit selfishly, perhaps, I would be thinking about Jera's future and our experiences of church and community and so on. And I think, you know what, we need a generation of church leaders and missionaries who are switched on around the issues of disability, Um, how can I contribute to that project? Well, given that I'm teaching in a seminary or theological college, uh, if I get appropriate qualifications in that area and start teaching in that, that will be a significant contribution.
1: And so that's what led you to doing your doctoral studies?
2: That's right. Yes, so then I through the University of Sydney, um, I started studying the Book of Job but reading it through the lens or through the lens of disability studies, but then I added a slightly different lens, the lens of otherness. So um, working within the social model of disability.
1: So Kirk, in in your doctoral work, you you looked more generally at how disability is conceived of in the Hebrew Bible and then zoom in on the book of Job. Can you sketch out for us what are some handholds for how the Hebrew Bible understands disability, particularly with reference to otherness?
2: Sure. So um, I was keen to work in the book of Job because I just sensed that there would be something going on there that would be relevant to the experience of disability. But I I gave myself the question: Can I prove in a, you know, can, yeah, can I prove that the man Job is disabled? And that's quite a complex question. And uh, you know, I, I really don't like studies where you take an ancient text and try to read back into it some sort of contemporary diagnosis. I feel like that's sort of a that's a methodological um, mismatch that may not lead to good. Results sort of not respecting the text on its own terms. And so I thought, what, what is going on with Job? Well, yes, he's, there's something going wrong with his skin, whatever exactly the language and imagery means. There does seem to be emotional distress going on. So I could argue for some sort of physical impairment, perhaps, or, or some sort of um, mental health challenge. But I thought what's the clearest thing is the breakdown in Job's place in society. That's crystal clear. And the breakdown of his friendship, the, the difficulties between himself and his wife, uh, the breakdown, or at least you know, the, the, the complexity of, and the tension that Job's feeling in terms of his relationship with God. So I thought, okay, that's that's where I've got the clear material. Also then, as I, so that made me think, okay, I've got to stay with, I've got to conceive of disability in social terms. And of course, I'm I'm, a, I'm aware, I think you've been talking to others down the path about medical and social and cultural and different definitions of disability. So so working within that social framework. Um, also looking at other people's work on disability in the Hebrew Bible, it's just good to realise that different cultures uh, create different polarities of thought. So in the Hebrew Bible, for instance, it seems that we've got this language of blemished or unblemished. Um, we've got the language of clean and unclean. But it seems you've got to say there's a completely different conceptual system going on there. And you can t- there's little ch- chinks in that when you try to say, okay, a blemished person has an impairment and is therefore disabled, Well, it doesn't completely work. For instance, um, it seems that you can be hearing impaired but not blemished in the Hebrew Bible. And it seems too there's even if you get a condition on your skin that that leads to variation in skin colour, that's a blemish. But should the disease take over such that your whole arm is the one colour, then it's not a blemish. So the categories of thought are different from our Medical ones. And of course, coming out of, um, you know, post enlightenment scientific method and so on, we've got this very medical lens that we bring to our bodies and our experience of our bodies. And so we'll be talking about whether or not we're diseased or not diseased and so on. Um, And then in disability, we tend to use categories of independent, you know, that often the the variable against which we're assessing people is how dependent or independent are they, which again sits within a worldview in terms of the autonomous that the autonomous individual is our reference point, which I don't think is the reference point of the Hebrew Bible. So just sort of at whatever track I went down, I'd think I can't simply impose the category the modern. You know, category of disability onto the book of Job. That's not going to work easily. But is there a category? And um, so I did sort of one step back and thought, well, um, social re- so, social relationships break down for all kinds of people around a whole lot of variables: ability, disability in our culture, gender, um, ethnicity language group and so on and I realized that that sort of study is um, the study of otherness and I thought aha I've got a more general category here that I think is going to be more fruitful and also just in terms of you know um, convincing a university that what you're studying is of value the study of otherness is very much on a whole lot of in a whole lot of academic disciplines the study of otherness is on view. And then it was sort of as a nice little um, bonus of that too. uh, I realized that, you know, the capital O other is a really valid category to ponder in theology um, and the, the other in sociology is really valid. So it was actually a category that let, let me think about Job's relationship with God as other and Job's relationship with Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, his wife, his servants, his family and his experience of being other. So it gave me a lovely big category. And then I I think what I'm realising what it's done for me in terms of ministry is um, made me really interested in the experience of isolation or segregation that disability may lead to. what, what are the social structures and patterns that we have that either contribute to that or break that down?
1: Yeah, and it seems that in some of your work you've looked at the, those dynamics of exclusion and stigmatisation and, yeah. and even discrimination as as I've seen you, you've done some work in the Book of Job. Can you kind of um, hash out in some more detail what those dynamics of otherness at the on the human axis are and then how they differ from this vertical axis which I think is such an interesting kind of fusion of ideas this the othering one another at the in the sociological terminology but then also the divine other the holy one and um how what have you found in 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 the intersection of those ideas
2: yes 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 so um I think it's really, it is important to separate them out because I think what's going on in the divine human relationship necess- is necessarily different. Um, but, I, but of course, in the end, there's it, going to be some um, interaction, of course. I did a, uh, th- this is when, I, in terms of my PhD work, this is when I sort of went into the abyss of the endless reading <laughs> And just realised all the different ways that we can conceptualise, so let's, we'll do sociology, all the different ways that we can conceptualise why um, we other one another. Um, so you can go psychoanalytic or psychodynamic and talk about the fact that we, we barely even really relate to the true other because we project so much of ourselves. selves. Um, so that. Uh, that goes on. I think Steph, you just mentioned the word stigmatizing. So the notion that you could mark a slave um, with a sign to sort of indicate that they're a slave, but that that idea broadening out that um, particular at, at different times in different cultures, particular impairments or physical appearances get a particular social connotation, and so people get um, rejected in those terms. There's scapegoating where a society sort of does this, I think it's unconscious, but this, this amazing process where the whole culture colludes to think that the problems of that culture are caused by a particular group of people and then for the scapegoating to be successful, that group comes to believe itself that it is the cause of harm in that particular social setting and in colludes with their own punishment in a way. So scapegoating can go on. Um, I I went to the work of um, Mikhail Bakhtin, um, a Russian literary critic who he he did, originally his work was in um, language and literature and he was interested in the way in Dostoevsky's novels characters aren't so much described as constituted through dialogue um, that you only get to know the characters through dialogue and uh he he his work introduced me to this notion of unfinalizability and um dialogic um, understandings uh, uh, one thing to understand about Dostoevsky is he's working in stalinist russia and so in his background he's got this hegelian account of otherness that um that there's going to be always in society these two groups and there'll be a thesis and an antithesis but they'll clash and then something sort of something will grow out of that that's better but um he'd sort of seen what grows out of a hegelian or then a marxist um, paradigm and he didn't necessarily think it was better and he wondered if we should not be trying when we have a, a thesis and a, an antithesis that we shouldn't be trying for a synthesis that we should be just sitting back with a dialogue um, that that's as good as that's that's sort of the closest we can get to reality so that that was a very um, telling and helpful um, insight for me that uh, that then came through in my work. Uh, I was introduced also to the work of Emmanuel Levinas or Levinas, however you want to say him, a French Jewish or Lithuanian but worked in France and wrote in French, um, scholar, who's really all about um, otherness. Uh, His experience is coming out of um, his family being uh, killed by the Nazis. He was imprisoned. He was working in France and imprisoned. Um, by the Nazis, he's got this fascinating idea that in the Western tradition we've made being the most central concern of philosophy and then theology. But with a mixture of his own um, sort of post-phenomenological thinking combined with his deep love of the Torah and his his great respect for the command, particularly thou shalt not kill. He turned that into a philosophy where he thought, whenever we encounter something that is not us, as Western philosophers, our questions are, are like, who are you? What are you? We ask questions of being. But he said the prior question is, what do I owe you? Um, the prior question is ethical. And so he said ethics is first philosophy. And he's an incre- I find him incredibly hard to read. So I feel I've, I always feel that I'm misrepresenting him when I speak. But I think he would say that there's no human being who is here apart from the fact that there was a mother and a father. So there is no being without an other. And then, of course, you can turn that into metaphysics, of course, that there's that there's a creator, um, there's something be, ev- behind every human being you meet, there's there's something prior. Um, and so whenever we meet being that being is in some ways derivative, and so there's always another. Um, and so he thought, he wrote uh, um, an exploration of otherwise than being, so, which you, you can't even put into words, like, what sort of being do we have when we're not being? It's sort of, so, it, so and the being that we have that's beyond our being is our moral reality that we bring a face, he calls it the face, we bring a face to every interaction and that first gesture of the face is to say, thou shalt not kill. So whenever we encounter another, um, we have a moral imperative and then he goes on to actually almost track, almost like a three-stage thing, that at first we um, we want to kill the other um then we come to respect I guess that there is another with a moral claim on it claim on us but then we finally reach this extreme position that some people are uncomfortable with we reach this extreme position where he he talks about that we become hostage um we become denucleated he says we are utterly beholden to our moral responsibility for the other and yeah so um yeah hostage is kind of a, a shocking but interesting example and now that's all it's all incredibly abstract and it's written in French so it's um it's you know it's late night dinner party material but uh I think it's interesting when we meet a person who doesn't seem to be behaving quite the way we would expect we do go into being, don't we? we? Like, what's the diagnosis? What are you? What's what's wrong with you? Who are you? are you? Are you autistic? Are you? Um, do you have cerebral palsy? You know, are you schizophrenic? We or do all these being questions? That's the that's so deeply the philosophical, you know, the philosophical air that we breathe. But then Levinas would say, okay, I'm meeting you. You're not behaving in terms of how I expect. But my first question is, what do I owe you ethically? And that's just such a different posture.
1: Yeah, it's a radically different approach to how you engage um, engage difference when you encounter it. And that, as you're speaking about that idea of the face, it reminds me of this beautiful um, essay written by Frederick Buechner when he talks about um, when we're confronted with another human face and everything that is bundled up with that face is um, something that is so confounding to us yet that it attracts such um, moral weight behind it right. and that that, that ethical yeah. responsibility that we have yeah. to this other, even if we can't categorise it neatly. Yeah. Um, something I'd like to follow up with you and maybe link this into um, some of your work as otherness engages with disability is that just to un- to make sure I'm understanding the work that Bacton yes. did. So is, is it that you're saying that, well, that he was saying that, um, that rather than seeking to find a synthesis between these two other com- competing forces, yes. that we just let them coexist in dialogue with one another? Yes, is that what is that what that's he's right.
2: saying? That's right. Yes, and he says when you read a Dostoevsky Dostoyevsky novel, yeah,
1: um,
2: that's that's the character of it. Um, yeah, they,
1: they very rarely resolve in any. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. And um, when I'm teaching this in class, sometimes I say just imagine that a group of friends went out for dinner last night and somebody couldn't make it. If the next day you try to say what was the dinner party about, it's that's a, it's sort of such a reductionistic silly question. Like, okay, at you know at the dinner party, um, the dinner party was about um, the upcoming state election in New South Wales or something. Well, that doesn't ever really get it. I mean, if you get, that's just reducing it to a topic, but. The dinner party was the dinner party. It's not reducible to a summary the next day because the reason Tom said this was because Helen said that, but if Helen had used a different tone of voice, then Jack wouldn't have said that. And, you know, it's this it's it, this irreducible dialogue and that's what it is. And, of course, that, that was a very useful concept to me too because the Book of Job, if you think about the Book of Job, it could have just been three or four chapters long. Um, there was a man called Job. He's blameless and upright Fears has God turns from evil. The, these two episodes with it, Satan happened, terrible things happened to him. Now, you could just then write, his three friends came to comfort him, but didn't do so very successfully. And then the Lord spoke out of a storm. You, you could narrate that. But for some reason, the author of the book of Job Thought I'll be doing truth and my readers a better service if I now inflict upon them chapter after chapter after chapter of irreducible dialogue um, that's full of uh, miscommunication, false starts, you know, difficulties in communication. Uh, some, for some reason, God's Holy Spirit decided to inspire that kind of text because uh, for the the kind of topic that job's dealing with i would suggest that the that actual that decision of form the dialogic form is a really useful one so then it means when you can when you counter somebody who's other than you you're not looking for the day when you finally both fully understand each other or you're not looking for the day when you finally both agree you're not looking to get to that because that so that's a that's a reductionistic grasp of truth um, but bakhtin said that his relationship with god was a conversation with the christ he was a russian orthodox man a uh, conversation with the christ uh, and i thought that's quite lovely now i i feel like i'm often i'm treading on thin ice here because i very much inhabit a confessional Christianity where I can state propositions of, you know, I believe this, I believe this, I believe this, and yet I'd still want to say that the lived experience of those truths, both with God and with other human beings, is better conceived dialogically, then um in it's something more reduced propositionally
0: so the way in which you are using Bakhtin and Levina uh, in your study of job is is really fascinating and drawing out that kind of dialogical nature of Job as being part of, you know, the form of this text and the irreducibility, as you described, is super interesting. And I'm wondering if you could just say a bit more about um, the otherness dynamic and how that plays out in in that dialogue um, between Job and his three friends.
2: Sure. So I think uh, with Job and his three friends, I think um, what's going on for the friends is that they've turned their relationship with god into something perhaps what we might call a, a symbiotic system where they see it as a sort of a you know a re- reward punishment paradigm um you know good things happen to good people bad things happen to bad people and it's difficult in that if you set in your mind that god is like you know, the, the the agent who delivers the rewards for, for the human behaviour, it's hard to know anymore who's, who's really God, you know, is God beholden to my good behaviour? So I, I would say the Book of Job is really wanting to assert that there's a divine otherness that is wholly other and that God is utterly free Um, and not constrained by human behavior but if you if you drill down into the course Eliphaz Bildad and Zophar that they don't really think that about God they think they've worked out what God is doing so that God is narratable to them not unfinalizable but narratable that's a Bakhtinian sort of uh, lens on that Um, and so they're, they're trying to narrate Job's life to him and saying look you think that you're innocent, but let me tell you the narrative truth. You've done something wrong. And it becomes almost ridiculous in the end that they have to invent. Um, Eliphaz's third speech is very distressing because he has to invent sins um, that Job has committed in order to maintain this system. So what, what they do, so they've reduced God to less than other because he's now God is answerable to their behavior and fully narratable um, by them. So they've reduced divine otherness into symbiosis and to finalization, I sort of called it. And then they're trying to do that with Job. And then, so uh, when you go through that lens, then it's wonderful when God turns up and blows that out of the water within that, Within that dialogue framework, I, I think there's sort of there's a movement where Job's in the dialogue, um, but then just toward the the dialogue breaks down. So at, at Job chapter twenty seven, I think the nature of the discourse changes to Job just talking to God and not talking to the friends anymore. And I love the very last thing that Job says to his friends at the end of twenty six. He's speaking about God and he says, by God's power, God churned up the sea. By his wisdom, he cut Rahab to pieces. By his breath, the skies became fair. His hand pierced the gliding serpent. What Job does, he moves into this mythological, mythopoetic sort of way of talking about God, which is, which is um, it's more elevated than the friends get to. So um, I love the the place of sea monsters and monst- monstrous creatures in the Book of Job is really important because they're they're literary coat hangers in a sense for otherness. You know, the the monster is the other um, that I can't reduce, I can't you know I can't understand, I can't account for, I can't defeat. So um, it's like Job is saying to his friends, "You think God's this agent of reward and punishment, but." no he's playing with monsters you know you, you don't get it he's playing with monsters and then he says in verse 14 but the and these are but the outer fringe of his works how faint the whisper we hear of him who then can understand the thunder of his power i think what you're seeing there is that job actually understands divine otherness how faint the whisper who can relate to his power and saying so i can't keep i can't keep um embedding myself in this dialogue with you friends, because you actually don't believe in divine otherness. Um, so I think that's quite lovely. And then, in terms of literary form, um, job, Job, I think then actually does become a bit too much like his friends and wants to do one last attempt. look, let's try one last time. can we can we reduce God to retributive theology? And force him into a courtroom, and then of course the Book of Job introduces a random new character, as though to say, "Okay, um, you thought this was all reducible, and God would be the next character to speak. We're just going to introduce a new random character called Elihu, and just delay, just delay the resolution, because God is so free; um, he can do what he likes, and he'll ter- he'll turn up when he's good and ready, not because you." Tell him to. So it preserves divine otherness again. Um, Then I think it's really important to note that God wants to talk about the undomesticated animals and the monsters. And I think that's God saying we really need to have a discourse about otherness. And to do that, I'm going to talk about ostriches and donkeys and wild oxen. And Behemoth and Leviathan. Um, so I think, and I actually think there's a whole lot of sociology as well as theology going on. Um, once you realise that the all these sort of weird creatures are placeholders for otherness. I mean, not just that. That's you know, I'm not reducing them to that. But you know, they're, they're performing that rhetorical work. This was the sort of the eureka. This is the pay dirt. I think of my um, uh, of my uh, theology. Um, PhD work. So, um, for instance, um, when um, when Joe even when Job was imagining his society in his last speech, he imagined a world where it seemed there were the worthy poor and the unworthy poor. So um, he he actually names people with disability. He says he was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame when he's when he's doing his When he sort of surrenders in a sense to a legal framework and says, "Okay, let's do. Let me do my best shot in terms of a legal framework," I was a really good guy. I was eyes to the blind. I was feet to the lame. So I cared for my family, and then beyond that, I cared for the widow, the fatherless, the blind, the lame. But interestingly, he always he notes that they gave him back honor. and really, he sort of he says he he lived his life in this honor shame framework, and it all seemed sort of so neat and tidy. But what what's really disturbed him is that the boys whose fathers he wouldn't even let sh- um, sleep with his sheepdogs, they are now laughing at him. So the the experience of being laughed at by boy little boys um, really upsets Job. Um, that's really key to his lament and he imagines there's this group of people who are almost like animals he sort of says they're a a nameless brood and they bray and they sort of they they search for food in the wilderness so job's got this notion that there's this unworthy poor they're like criminals but there's some group of people who are right on the margins that and he doesn't feel he owes them anything And they're now the ones laughing at him. So it's so I'm just raising that because in the discourse up to before God speaks, our imagination has been taken to the very edges of the village where there are people making animal noises trying to find food and they're laughing at Job and that's terrible. Then God says, I made the donkey and he's right on the edges of town, and I'm making it rain there so that he's got food, and he's laughing at the city. And so God takes up this notion of laughter, which I think is, a again, it's another one of the technologies of otherness, isn't it? We laugh at the other. We mock them. We find what's funny. And laughter, in a sense if you sort of step back from what laughter is about, it's when something happens that's in the wrong place. We laugh because it was other. Something was unexpected and we laugh. But the Hebrew word for laugh, it's a bit like English, we can laugh at and laugh with. The Hebrew word for laughter stretches from mocking to dancing and celebrating. And I think God, God uses that. Uh, semantic range to say the donkey is laughing at the city. Well, yes, he's mocking it, but he's also got this playful, I think, celebratory way of being in the world, where the donkey says it's really good that I'm not in the city, where somebody can tie me up or put a saddle on me. You know, it's it's lovely not to be domesticated. It's lovely to be free out here in the wild. And if Job's got ears to hear, Job could start to think, oh, my goodness, there was this group of people who I thought were beyond help, who were so marginalised that I had no moral responsibility toward them, but God is looking, God's there with them and is looking after them, feeding them, and they're, they're actually enjoying themselves, their laughter it doesn't just have this sting of mockery but has this element of play and then he, he goes on to the ostrich the wings of the ostrich flap joyfully though they cannot compare with the wings and feathers of the stork. she lays her eggs on the ground she's unmindful that a foot may crush them for god did not endow her with wisdom or give her a share of good sense now that's very provocative. If you read that with a disability lens, now you could, I could end up in a te- some terrible places here theologically. So I feel I have to be really careful. But I'll just just sort of to leave it at poetry that God's happy to create creatures who do not have their share of good sense. Um, that's really provocative, I think, in terms of what does. Um, God the good creator choose to do in his world in terms of the variety uh, that he wants to create and but then the ostrich laughs as well yet when she spreads her feathers to run she laughs at horse and rider again you could say there's a mockery there yes there is but there's also a play and um, I think what what you start to see is that when God describes others like this the strange um on the edges aspects of his creation the donkey the ostrich even the leviathan god's posture toward them is gracious he wants to provide rain for them it's full of wonder um he 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 god seems to enjoy taking his time especially with the behemoth and the leviathan he really enjoys taking his time describing them um as though uh it, he really is quite proud of his handiwork um of what what he's done here and so then that sort of led me to read a bit about well, what's wonder and wonder is one of the devices we can use in social relationships of otherness, um, it's, and it's so different from stigmatising or, you know, segregating, discriminating. Um, you know, it's this lovely posture of curiosity um, and uh, some, some writers have said that when we sit in wonder with the other, that in a sense the, the barriers between us dissolve away And we notice the goodness of the other. So again, it's sort of it's it's teaching a little bit indirectly that God just takes his time in talking to Job, and we luckily get to overhear it. He just takes his time describing the ostrich and describing the donkey and describing the wild ox and the war horse because it's just worth taking your time and just noticing um, and wondering at things. So um, that's sort of really interesting to me. So that sort of this, that, that gave me the category of wonder. And then with the Bactinian lens, if, if, the, um, if the donkey can laugh at the city, then God, in God's economy, it's not just for the city to laugh at the donkey, but the donkey has the right to laugh back at the city. And there you've got reciprocity and and dialogue going on. And it's really like, so the the donkey laughs, the ostrich laughs, um, Leviathan laughs. Um, And really interestingly in the Psalms, when you describe God's um, relationship with Leviathan, um, it's the word frolic in some english translation it's the word "laugh." again that god what that god laughs and um, one of my supervisors in my phd work was a jewish rabbi and he said there's almost this there's a jewish catechism sort of thing that says what is yahweh doing what is the lord doing he is playing with leviathan that's that's the answer so um and that's again theologically to ask what is what is God doing today? He's playing with a sea monster. That's that is such an otherness conception of God. But if God today is playing with a sea monster, well, what is He asking of me when I encounter the other? You know, He's asking me to play, to frolic, um, and so then so you can see what I'm what I'm starting to get from the Lord's description to Job is um, a sociology of dialogue and reciprocity, a sociology of laughter, which perhaps we could turn into the word play, a playfulness. Um, uh, and then well, we're getting wonder, the, the, just the time it takes. Does, and so you can start to see we're getting a new paradigm here or social relationships and I live with somebody who's intellectually impaired and on the autistic spectrum and over he's 25 over the decades of doing that I've learned that one of my most constructive postures is play and wonder and laughter um, I think when I when Jera was sort of under five I got clinically depressed. We also had a daughter die, so we had a whole lot going on. You know, I I I could get myself terribly caught up in um, sin, judgment, fall, uh, disability, disability as tragedy. Oh my goodness, what's happened to our family? Why are we caught in these cycles of the tragic? Um, Or I could realise, okay is 25 and he still wants to sing Wiggles songs like that's a children's I think it's known in America they're known well why not you know what I, I could say oh what a tragedy that my 25 year old wants to watch the Wiggles um oh you know sin and the fall have really ruined our family God is evil you know if the, how am I going to account for God's goodness in this or do I say, oh, yeah, gosh, that's a good song of the Wiggles. Why don't, why don't we all get up and dance? Um, and so now we've got a way of being together in wonder and play, and it's it's just a different way of being in the world with the other. And it's sort of, in a way, it's the book of Job that delivers that to me.
1: I mean, Kirk, um, the Wiggles did top the triple j hottest I 100 do. list <laughs> that for yeah. our non-australian listeners that's one of the mainstream um, radio channels so much to learn from much to learn
2: from admiring the wiggles,
1: the wiggles. Yeah. thank you so much for that that is just so tremendously helpful for me And one of the things that i think i've picked up from the way you've stitched together these different ideas is that so often um in a lot of the ways that particularly Christians, have thought about disability. It has this moral freight to it in that the way we interpret disability, it is it is that there's that, that punitive component or there's a lack of faith or there's something that's, you know, something that's gone wrong. And, you know, um, oftentimes that the the, the – the weight of that, the burden of that, of that is borne by the person, either with the disability or by th- those who are close to them, in trying to, almost like tea leaves, like divine. Yes. What what what's caused this? Yes. Whereas when yes. you, when you introduce, um, these ideas of the unf- unfinalizability, yes. of so much of what we encounter in our lived experience of, the world, ourselves, God. Yes. That invitation to wonder, yes. and play, is yes. actually a massive relief, yes. because you just yes. you're free to just engage with, yes. things yes. you find in the world on their own terms rather than trying to find yes. cosmic yes. meaning behind yes. behind them. That's so right. thank you so much.
2: Okay, I'll, I'll just add a, a little PS to that. It's interesting that Job's relationship with his children in chapter one is full of moral freight in your language. Have they done something wrong? I better offer sacrifices. Um, His relationship with his children is different in chapter 42, um, he names three girls and he calls them Dove, Cinnamon and Horn of Eyeshadow. Really playful names. And the writer doesn't worry about their sin but notices that they're beautiful and then and God gives to his daughters an inheritance which in the patriarchal culture is unwarranted and needless Um, and so it's an act of playful grace Um, my daughters are beautiful and I can give them an inheritance along with their brothers um, and I'm not narrating my children in terms of sin and sacrifice anymore so That's again that, and when I sort of saw that, I thought, ah, yeah, I yep, yep, this is this is what the the book's in. So there's the gender, the other the othering of women in chapter one, and you know the woman is the temptation who will want me to curse God and die. No, the woman is the the beautiful um, one. So Mm -hmm. that's another little lens into it.
0: Uh, I love that, and uh, really appreciate the way that you've uh, shown us how Job uh, presents to us a sociology of dialogue, play, and wonder, a- a- as you described. And I'm I'm curious to hear how this plays out in terms of the your current ministry with our place Christian communities. If you could tell us a bit about how the work that you've done on Job and that sociology of dialogue, play, and wonder uh, manifests themselves in in that ministry that you're currently part of.
2: Yes, yes, yes. So um so it's a ministry that's it's got two arms. Um, one is trying to resource and inspire the church to be a place of disability inclusion um which and um I think probably Louise Gosbell has spoken a fair bit about that and actually she's now come to she's now going to be working for our place, Christian communities. I'm delighted to say doing a lot of that church education and consultancy work, which she's so good at. The other dimension is we're trying to take on the hard question of disability accommodation, um, which is a very in probably across the world, but I think in Australia, real estate and um, and disability housing and disability are amongst the most complex of social problems, and so we've decided to try and tackle both of them at once, madly. Um, what we're imagining is um, a bit like the work that uh, Larsh does. Can we create, can we buy houses that are walking distance from healthy churches and can we, um, with, with disability funding here at the moment, we probably do need to group two or three people with disability together to get some economies of scale. It would be nice to not have to do that but, you know, money is not infinite. I appreciate that. Um, what we're going to try to do, though, is have somebody who doesn't live with disability living in the house so that there's real um, relationship and dialogue and conversation around the dinner table. To then, and to have this a church that's equipped that values the roles of those people. And then to have um frequent meals and celebrations in that house where the church is invited so that it's not an institution that is about segregating and keeping people away from society but it's actually a hub of play wonder celebration dialogue and it, beautifully just on Sunday night've we've, we've bought a house and it's too small and desperate for money to extend it but we've made a start and we had um, after church I think about 18 people strolled down the street and came here for dinner Um, and our son with intellectual disability and autism hosted um, that dinner welcomed people said grace um, with support structured a little bit of reflection of time on the sermon that we'd heard that night structured helped people pray so you know he was in that ministry ministry Role and what was lovely, like Lisa and I did the cooking. What was lovely was at the end of that night, another couple said, "You know what? We should come back here next month, and so your mum and dad don't have to cook, Jera. How about we cook?" And I thought, Bingo! We've arrived uh, at it. So now Jera can host a meal. It's beyond him to cook a cook a meal for eighteen people, but somebody else can do that, and with, so then with Jera create that highly social, rich context, walking distance from the church that becomes part of church life. So I think that was, that was just a beautiful vignette of what's possible. And um, sadly in Australia at the moment, there's a lot of political discourse around what's going wrong with our disability accommodation, terrible stories of violence, abuse, neglect and exploitation. And really for all of those things, the answer is stop segregating people and get people in real relationships. I mean that like that's the answer to so many of our otherness issues, isn't it? Get people in real conversation. Um, and, and so that's what we're saying with people with people with all kinds of, dis- I mean we're particularly focusing on intellectual and autism because they're the ones who have the most difficulty with advocacy around housing and so on, in our experience. So surround them with real friendships and dialogue and the violence, abuse, neglect, exploitation issues, I think, won't be anywhere near as pressing Yeah.
0: Well, Dr. Patson, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for sharing uh, about your work on on Job and, and the work that you're currently doing with Our Place Christian Communities. And just really appreciate your time and everything that you shared with us.
2: Well, it's been really fun to talk with you. Thank, and thanks for your insightful questions. It's great. <music>